come on. Let's talk about sex. Welcome to Central Michigan Life's podcast. Let's talk about sex. everyone, this is Megan Pacer, uh, and this is Let's Talk About Sex, and today I have a guest with me. Hello, my name is Ashley Fennessy. I am the president of Voices for Planned Parenthood here at Central Michigan Uni- University, and I am also a campus representative for Advocates for Youth. And she has been writing sex columns for us and contributing to Let's Talk About Sex uh, this semester. Last week, actually, um, she wrote a really great one called For the Love of Lube, where she talked about um, lubrication as uh, more than just something for pleasure, which is something that not a lot of people know about it. And so if you haven't checked that article out, I encourage you to do so at cm-life.com. It's a great column. And we're going to kind of lead into our discussion of STIs through that column today. And I'll kind of let Ashley take over here. Basically, the column um, talks about the fact that a lot of people, when you hear the word lube or lubrication, you associate it it mostly with pleasure. And that is definitely true. It kind of makes everything work together a lot more smoothly. That's its purpose. Um, But a purpose that isn't talked about as much as it should be is the fact that lubrication plays a large role in preventing STIs, sexually transmitted infections. Some of you might know those as STDs, sexually transmitted diseases. Uh, the more updated phrase is infections, um, and lubrication plays a, a pretty big part in um, helping to prevent you from contracting those. So, Ashley, do you want to talk about how? Yeah, okay. So, like you said, uh, lube is usually marketed, talked about, and thought about as something around pleasure or for people who do not naturally lubricate. And, in fact, it actually does a lot to help prevent uh, sexually transmitted infections because it prevents the skin in your vagina or anus to um, not tear, which a lot of people are like, what are you talking about? (laughs) I haven't had uh, horrible skin tearing uh, sex, but no. The um, tears that I'm talking about are called fissures, and they're not really visible, and it's unlikely that you would feel them happening. They're uh, quite small, but they are large enough to allow the uh, STIs to get into your bloodstream, and that is the easiest way to contract an STI rather than um, just through uh, contact with your... Right, through, uh, from person to person with bodily per- fluids. Yeah. So if I'm understanding that right, um, the tears, the really tiny tears, aren't they're microscopic, correct, in a lot yes. of cases? And they're basically just from friction, because when you're yes. having intercourse, skin is rubbing against skin. Um, that's just the nature of how it happens. And so from the friction, it causes skin to have microscopic tears. And yes. through those tears, it's the bodily fluids that are entering your system? Yes, okay. well the bodily, the bodily fluids carrying the viruses or right. bacteria that causes sexually transmitted infections. Okay, right, and so um, can you talk about how lubrication um, prevents those tears? Okay, so lubrication decreases friction by giving you uh, more yeah, <laughs> you know, lubrication. Lubrication. Yeah. It's pretty self-explanatory. Yeah, yes. it just helps. Like I said before, it helps things. Uh, the skin slide past each slide um, past more smoothly. Um, yeah. Things aren't rubbing. Things aren't tearing. Yes. Okay. So then there are three different types of lube, and only two types that you should actually use. <laughs> Which a lot of people I feel like don't know. And yeah. I've heard you know some horror stories about things that people have used. Um, 
in a substitute situation when you don't have the proper lubrication yes. ready, um, that's something you should never do. I think a good point you made in your column was that um, you should only purchase lubrication that is sold in stores <laughs> and marketed as lubrication for the purpose of sexual intercourse. Um, you don't want to substitute any household items for that um, because a lot of them have oil and Ashley yes. is going to explain why that is bad. Yes, okay, so say you were having some problems and wanted a little synthetic assistance but you didn't have lube available. So some people will go for baby oil, lotion, I've heard of people using canola oil, and uh, the problem with this is that uh, these are all oil-based lubrications, and they will uh, cause latex to get tiny holes in it, which will compromise the effectiveness of your condoms or dental dams. And in fact, they will even um, degrade most sex toys if you're using oh, it for that. I didn't know that. So yeah, if anyone ever wants to try this out, you can chew bubblegum, which has a uh, rubberized um, uh, parts to it, and then also put peanut butter in your mouth. And the oil from the peanut butter will make your bubble gum kind of degrade and. Oh, okay. Like so try begin. out what happens when you use yeah. an oil base. Yes. Okay. Uh, you could also blow up a balloon and rub oil on it, and it will gradually degrade the balloon, and the balloon will pop. Okay. Wow. So, All right. So <laughs> if you want to do a science experiment for yourself. <laughs> that's I actually did yeah. not know that, and I'm probably going to go yes. buy a balloon after this. <laughs> Um, so what are the two types of lubrication that are safe for sexual intercourse? Okay, so there's water-based and silicone-based. Water-based lubes are obviously based on water, so they will evaporate or soak into your skin as you use them, which has advantages in that it's not a messy cleanup, it's uh, not going to leave residue or stick around. Unfortunately, you probably will have to reapply it as it evaporates or soaks into your skin. Uh, it also probably shouldn't be used if you're in a shower <laughs> or uh, underwater, if you're adventurous like that. Um, and then there's silicone lube, which is obviously based, based on silicone. And uh, this is a more viscous lube, which means it's thicker, and uh, it does a better job of reducing friction. And it's not going to evaporate as quickly. It it doesn't really evaporate oh, okay. at all unless, I guess, we set it out for, like, a month. Okay. Um, and it doesn't really soak into your skin at all. So if you really need lubrication, for example, if you're doing something that involves anal penetration where there's absolutely no bodily lubrication, right. then this will give you more and you won't have to reapply it as much. Uh unless you make a complete mess. <laughs> but the drawbacks are that you uh, will have to clean up afterwards and you might feel... Um, some residue? Some residue okay. after. But the silicone is the one that gives the most friction reduction yes. during yes. Uh, anal or uh, vaginal sex. Yes. All right. And then um, these lubes can come in flavored varieties. Right. However, I would caution you that... Uh, these flavored lubes typically have some type of sugar or artificial sweetener in them that gives them their taste and that really should not go inside your vagina <laughs> because 
just like it tastes good to you, it will taste good to bacteria, and you don't want a bacterial infection okay. inside of you. I actually so. hadn't heard that. I was just my uh, thought was just thinking of like an adverse reaction, like an allergic reaction potentially. Yeah. Definitely, um, if you're going to use any type of lube or really anything that's going to go near those parts, uh, try to test it on your inner thigh first and that's also a sensitive part of your skin so if you react poorly to that then uh probably don't put it inside anything right. um and definitely read the instructions yes, and read the, directions the instructions and the ingredients that's always a good idea yeah. um and then also if you want to try something new out with your partner uh especially if it's something that you really need like um a condom if you wanted to try like a fire nice condom or something make sure you have something that you know works beforehand mm -hmm. so that um, you aren't in a sexual situation where all you have is this one type of condom and then your partner decides they don't like fire and ice inside of them right. and then you're confronted with no the choice at all. to yeah. not have sex or have uncomfortable <laughs> sex. Right, so. yeah. Very good, or very good point. Or be very risky, so. Right. Okay, well, um, I hope that was educational for all of you. And um, we're kind of going to use that to segue into a broader discussion of STIs in general. So we just talked about how lubrication prevents STIs. Um, and I feel like before I personally got more involved in sex education, um, I was part of Safer Sex Patrol on campus. Before I joined that group, um, you know, I knew this, this kind of vague term STIs, but I didn't know a lot of the specific ones. And I also didn't know that there were three main kinds and that those all affect your body differently and all have a different um, type of end result, whether you can get rid of them or not. And so we're just kind of going to take you through it um, point, point, point by point. Um, of the different STIs uh, that you need to watch out for and what you can do um, upon potentially finding out that you have one of these. So I thought it might be nice to start with um, viral. That is one of the three kinds. Uh, viral, there are um, quite a few different ones. The way I like to remember it is uh, the four H's because HPV, which is uh, more commonly known as genital warts, herpes, hepatitis A, B, and C, and HIV are all viral STIs. There are more viral STIs than those four, but those are the four that start with H, so that's generally how I like to try to remember it. Um, do you want to talk about HPV? HPV is, like you said, genital warts. It can cause cancer. It could potentially do nothing for you. Right. Or it could cause... Um, genital warts. Yeah. Oh, no, cancer. Those are the three. Yeah, yeah this, yes. okay. which I actually originally didn't know. Um, I thought uh, they they only the virus only caused genital warts, but there is um, a separate strain that causes cancer, which actually is nice to know. So that if you're in a, ever in a position where you are di diagnosed with that, you should know that the strain that causes genital warts is not associated with the strain that causes cancer. So if you have one, it doesn't necess necessitate that you're going to have the other, um, which is nice to know. And also just that. Um, like you said, there is a strain that you can have that doesn't cause any symptoms and that can go away on its own, which is actually why um, I looked up earlier, three out of four Americans um, have HPV and a lot of them just don't know it because it can be completely asymptomatic, which is somewhat concerning. So, Yes. And then... Do you want to talk about Oh, yeah, I can, I can keep going. Uh, another one that um, a lot of people, I feel, have heard um, is herpes. 
um, one in five people over the age of 12 will have the strain called HSV2, and that is the strain associated uh, with genital herpes. Um, obviously, you can have also herpes uh, sores come up on your mouth and other parts of your bodies as well, uh, of your body. And herpes is kind of known for um, having flashes, um, or I guess receding, and then having flare-ups. Um, and the thing with all uh, of the ones that we're talking about right now, all viral STIs, uh, viral means that that is something, a virus that is going to stay in your system. That's not something that you are ever going to be able to rid yourself of. These are only treatable. So if you um, end up contracting a viral STI, HPV, herpes, hepatitis, or HIV, which I think, as we, most of us know, can lead to uh, AIDS, um, that's something that you're not going to be able to get an over-counter drug for to just make it go away. That is something you will live with for life. But I think especially now, maybe even within the last decade or so, they've come up with a lot of um, good treatment plans and medications so that it is easier to live with it. Um, so it's always going to be there, but it's not always going to be a problem for you. Is basically what I what I've taken away from what yes. I know of viral STIs. Yes, it is manageable, but it's not possible to completely rid yourself of it. Right. Do you want to talk about bacterial? Yes. Okay. So bacterial infections include chlamydia, gonorrhea, pelvic inflammatory disease, and syphilis. Yeah, all big big names <laughs> that I feel like. And again, there are more, but uh, those are the ones I feel people hear thrown around most often. Okay. And then with a bacterial infection, the great thing is that it is possible to cure these. Uh, however, um, it's not, like for instance, with HPV, we have, um, we're developing vaccines for them. And I don't think that's ever going to be the case with the With bacterial. bacterial. Yeah. Yeah. Bacterials, um, so obviously whenever you have any bacteria in your body, even if it's not related to a sexually transmitted disease, the way you combat bacteria is with an antibiotic. Yes. So those are a lot easier to actually rid yourself of, but you do have to go into the doctor for that and, yeah. and things like that. Okay. And then parasitic it are tiny bugs um, that usually are in your <laughs> pubic hair, um, and this includes pubic lice and scabies. Mm -hmm. uh, normally, you could just shave or get a cream or, like or a shampoo. shampoo that will take care of that. Yeah. So, and I feel like, um, in talking about the distinction between STIs and STDs, I feel like um, the parasitic STIs and bacterial STIs really kind of explain for people who maybe don't understand why there was a change in the acronym. So if you think about it, the word disease really connotates something more along the lines of HIV or herpes, where that's like a lifelong debilitating thing and it has a more negative connotation. But in terms of uh, saying STIs, infections over diseases, something like parasitic pubic lice or um, a bacterial infection that you can get an antibiotic for, those are not permanent. And so they have a much, that's not something that has to follow you around for the rest of your life. And so I feel like um, saying infection better encompasses all of the STIs and encompasses the fact that some of these aren't permanent and you're not going to be living with them for the rest of your life. So just for anyone, I know I personally was confused when the name change yeah. happened. Uh, well, it, it was a two-part decision. One is to decrease stigma around right. sexually transmitted infections because to say you have an infection is something that could be managed, treated, or completely taken care of. 
But to say someone is diseased is a little more stigmatized. And then the second part is that diseases, by definition, have symptoms. And over 80% of people who have a sexually transmitted infection won't know. So there's a lot of times are not significant symptoms. However, they are... Uh, they can be quite dangerous, causing problems such as um, infertility mm-hmm. or, in some cases, with HIV or syphilis, it could even lead to death. So, right. Yeah, and um, one I think we forgot to mention was um, vaginitis, which I actually um, didn't know prior to looking it up um, a year or two ago. And um, just thinking about that one, it's a little bit of a tricky one because it can actually be caused by a virus, bacteria, or a parasite. Um, Vaginitis, um, if you don't feel like looking up, most often um, takes the form of a yeast infection, I think, is the most common uh, type of vaginitis, if I'm remembering I don't know a lot about vaginitis. I... I think isn't it caused by a pH imbalance? Yes, that allows, yep. yeah. yeah, and that's generally um, the way that um, a yeast infection will happen is a pH imba- imbalance. And when a pH imbalance happens, that's a bacterial thing. And so yes. there's there is the cause that's bacterial, um, but then it can also be caused by parasites and um, uh, by a virus. So that one's kind of a, a triple threat that you have to look <laughs> out for. But if yes. it's a yeast infection, obviously that's a that's a pretty common. Um, thing that women have to deal with. And I also think it's interesting um, because when you think yeast infection, that doesn't really have a not negative connotation. That's just something that every once in a while happens, happens. and you have to deal with and you take a yeah. pill for it. But it is technically an STI. So I think it's just it's just always been interesting to me how some can have such a negative connotation and then others really we don't even think about. But, um, yeah. but yeah, you're right. It, it's so sad that... Um, when you hear someone has a sexually transmitted infection, you're like, oh, they're, they're, they're so gross. Right. They must be, or they must have a lot of sex. They, yeah, they but really, no. Um, most Americans will end up right. having some kind of sexually transmitted infection or vaginitis. Mm-hmm. Or, um, yeah, so, I mean, eh, yes, um, sexual relationships, uh, can lead to these, but really, um, it's it no it's no ma- more a reflection on you as a person as getting the flu would be. Right. It's just you've encountered a virus or a bacteria, and unfortunately, you're sick. So. Yeah, and you have to go to the doctor and take care of it, just as you would, like you said, the flu. <laughs> yes. So I agree. There definitely needs to be um, less of a stigma, and I think you're right in changing it from STD to STI that personally, I hope, is helping with the stigma to um, alleviate it against people who do get these infections. And like you said, 80% uh, won't know they have it because there are minimal to no symptoms. And so, you know, you could be being, and a lot of times you can be being completely safe because a lot of these, Mm -hmm. because they're bacterial and because they're parasitic, can be passed from person to person even when you are on birth control using either the pill, um, a condom, or a dental dam. Even if you use maybe all three of those, things things can still go wrong and these um, infections can still be spread. So like you said, it's not a reflection of whether you are a, you practice safe sex or unsafe sex. You can still contract an STI either way. So it really shouldn't be a reflection on someone's um, responsibility in terms of their sexual uh, life. Yes. And uh, 
it's particularly upsetting to me that it is so stigmatized because whenever I talk to people when I'm doing sexual health demonstrations or even just with my friends and they'll talk about their sexual encounters with their different partners and they'll tell me that they always ask their partners if their partner is clean. Right. And I'm like, well, there's an 80% chance that if they do have an STI that they won't know. Right. And they're not purposely uh, deceiving you. But just because if they do have an STI, that doesn't make them unclean. So if it were destigmatized and people were able to uh, tell each other mm-hmm. uh, when they had contracted an STI, or even just to work up the courage to go get themselves regularly mm-hmm. tested, uh, people would be a much more healthier. Uh, That's a big thing, too, because I know I have um, my annual um, checkup with uh, an OBGYN, which I think most women do. Um, And so after a certain point, I think it was, for me, it was when I turned 21. Um, I believe previously it was 18 you had to start getting pap smears. Mm -hmm. And then at least me personally, with my doctor, they switched the age to 21. And so at that point, you do start getting tested for certain um, sexually transmitted um, infections or other things that could be going wrong with your sexual health. Um, But other than that, you know, who's really going to go out and pay for an STI test just because they feel like being clean? But I think you're right. If we emphasize that as being important and everyone being as knowledgeable about their own sexual health as possible and being open about it with other people, we would probably be a much healthier society. Yes. Or more free from sexually transmitted (laughs) infections. Yes. Yeah. Um, And I think you had wanted to, back when we were talking about lubrication, you had wanted to mention that it's not always um, talked about in the same-sex community as much as it is in the uh, Uh, male to female. I, um... You made a good point about that. Yes. Uh... Unfortunately, in our sex education system, if you are lucky enough to go to a school yes, that, that has, sex has it, it is usually focused around heterosexual uh, vaginal intercourse. And lubrication definitely can help prevent STIs with vaginal intercourse, but it is incredibly important for um, anything involving anal penetration, which is usually associated with homosexual couples, so it doesn't get talked about as much. And uh, just a side note, homosexual males are not the only ones right, who <laughs> that engage. do this, um, but even if they were, we should still try to keep them healthy. So yeah, it's, it's very sad to me that something that could go a long way in preventing uh, STIs even as serious as HIV, is not talked about because it's associated with a specific community. Right. And um, also, unfortunately, uh, this community, uh, gays, lesbians, um, sometimes bisexuals, if they're in a same-sex relationship, don't feel included in sexual health classes, so they're less likely to pay attention. They're probably not uh, as worried about preventing pregnancy unless they are engaging uh, with an opposite sex. Um, So when they're with a same-sex partner, they're less likely to use things like condoms because they're not afraid of becoming pregnant. And since they trust their partner, 
their partner probably doesn't think or know that they have an STI, that uh, condoms and dental dams and other barrier methods that can prevent you from STIs are left on the nightstand because ultimately they reason that it's a trust mm-hmm. thing. And uh, but I wish that if they if they felt more included, if we talked more about um, taboo sexual relationships, and if we talked about uh, the need for preventing STIs in addition to pregnancy, that um, there would be more of a focus on protecting the people mm-hmm. you love and not seeing it as a something that questions your trust of them. Right, because you can, you can trust a, a partner that you're with um, 100% implicitly, um, but that doesn't necessarily mean that you're protected because, like you said, your partner might not know that they um, have mm-hmm. an STI, and so even if they could tell you, they can't because they, even if they wanted to tell you, they couldn't because they don't know. Um, and yeah, that's that's just a really good point because thinking back, I did go to a school that had um, sexual health education. I think I got it around fifth or sixth grade. And at that point, um, you're right, it was very, um, you know, penis and vagina, uh, vaginal intercourse focus, basically just teaching you the parts and not yes. anything uh, anything further, not anything about relationships, not anything about asking your partner if they've been tested, <laughs> not anything about, uh, and just to think if I had known about, if. If schools presented the idea of lubrication as something protective in high school, I think that would, you know, people would grow up thinking that and thinking that was normal and not just, you know, having found it out years later in college because people do consider lubrication so purely for the pleasure aspect. Um, and I think, I mean, obviously I don't, I don't know how they decide um, what kind of sexual education is going to go on in schools, but I think they could definitely benefit from being a little more open-minded, like you said, including um, topics of same-sex, or same, uh, same-gender sex and same-sex uh, relationships, um, and it would just keep people more educated. I think we can all agree education is the key to everything. Yes. Especially when you're talking about a subject that makes a lot of people uncomfortable, mm-hmm. to make it a space where they feel like they can ask any question is incredibly important, and uh in my high school, they my high school did a better job than most high schools, but um, there there was a student who specifically asked about uh, same sex relationships and um, those types of things, and the teacher was like, "I'm so sorry. I wish I could talk about that, but the policy is that wow. we only followed this specific curriculum." So I cannot talk to you about that in class. And that's, I mean, and how many people were probably thinking the same question or how many other students also raised their hands in different schools and asked that and were denied that education? And then how many other questions did people hesitate or not ask because Mm -hmm. they didn't want to be singled out as the strange person that was asking an off-the-wall question? So, yeah, I agree. Um, Well, I think maybe it would be helpful to just wrap up by, uh, we've had this long discussion about STIs um, and everything about them pretty much, Um, and if, I guess just to end by saying how incredibly important it is to get yourself tested um, more than just an annual checkup, um, it's very important at the very first sign 
um, of an STI to to go ahead and get that checked out. And a lot of people maybe you you may be thinking I've never had one. I don't know what the symptoms are. Really, I think the rule of thumb is that if there's anything abnormal going on with your genitalia, that is when you want to go get something <laughs> checked. I mean, I think your doctor would be uh, would much rather you come in on a suspicion and have it be nothing than to go months thinking, oh, I don't, I don't think I read this as being mm-hmm. a symptom of an STI, so I'm going to let it go. I think as soon as something is abnormal, that's when you want to go. And there are a few places in Mount Pleasant you can do that. Yeah, um, definitely if there's anything abnormal, uh, don't wait it out go to your doctor but um, other times you should you should get tested every six months you should get tested every time you switch partners and you should get tested if you engaged in any type of risk associated sexual um, encounter for example if you had unprotected anal sex if a condom broke um, if you did see any type of bleeding or blood if you engaged with a person who's a regular um, needle user, uh, uh, someone who does drugs with needles. Um, Those are all times when you should go see the doctor and just make sure everything's okay so that you can protect yourself and your future partners. Yeah, because those are all times when you are at a heightened risk of exposure to any of the STIs we just talked about. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Well, um, some places in Mount Pleasant that you can go if you're wondering are um, University Health Services. That's right here on our campus. Um, mm-hmm. They do a range of STI testing. Um, any of the urgent cares in Mount Pleasant, which um, in my opinion would be more helpful because um, if you're someone who doesn't know where to go and you think, oh, I'll just go to the hospital, or if it's um, you think it's an emergency situation and you think I need to go to the ER, if you go to an urgent care center, they are going to charge you much less. It's generally just a copay, um, usually around 20 to $40, something like that, and your charge is going to be a lot less, and you'll have usually a shorter wait than if you were to go to an emergency room. So I would highly recommend uh, utilizing the urgent care centers. Yeah, and then a lot of times when I'm talking to students who are still on their parents' health insurance, they're very, very concerned that their parents are going to be able to see that they went and had this done. But uh, if you are over the age of 18 and you haven't signed a paper that allows your parents to see your medical uh, information, then the doctors are legally not allowed to provide them that information. A charge will show up uh, showing that you went for services, but it will not tell them what they were. And uh, if you're extremely concerned and you really feel like you need this done, you could just tell them (laughs) you were sick, you had the flu. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Not that I'm encouraging dishonesty. I would hope that people have the ability to speak to their parents about that. but. If it's, that's not everyone's relationship. Yeah, so. so if that is something that you need, then that is an option available to you. Yeah. And if you, um, especially since we're students, I know personally I live far from home, so for me it makes more sense to go to an urgent care or university health mm-hmm. services. But if you live quite close to home or you live right here in Mount Pleasant, um, going to your family doctor or if you have a regular OBGYN um, is usually the best option because that is a person you've, probably been with for a few years uh, with your family and they know uh, more about you and your situation so that's Mm -hmm. always um, a good option if you um, are in a position to take advantage of it. And then if you don't have health insurance 
and um, unfortunately there are no Planned Parenthoods very close to Mount Pleasant. But is the closest in Midland? Or Saginaw? Saginaw. Yes, I'm that's right. Sure actually, Saginaw. that is right. And uh, so, if you live in a larger city that has a Planned Parenthood and you don't have health insurance, uh, most Planned Parenthoods will adjust their prices based on your income. And as a student, you probably have a very low or no income. So these uh, to get STI testing would be quite affordable. Yes, awesome. Thank you for reminding me about that. Um, Well, I think that's pretty much all we had. Um, So thank you all for listening, and we'll see you next time.